So welcome back everyone. Greetings and if it works for you to have your video on, uh, that is great for me. I like to be able to see people as much as possible when I'm uh, speaking and when we're interacting. So if that can work for you to have your video on, uh, appreciate it. I want to continue this week with the theme that I introduced uh, last week, which I called uh, Awakening and Habitual Tendencies, or we could also speak of it. How do I keep the perspective that I'm in a process of awakening at the same time that I'm noticing all sorts of, um, shall we say, habits of mind, of body, of behavior that are often uh, not great habits. Uh, you know, one, one I think, uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche once said, you know, in the context of answering a question about uh, rebirth, he said, uh, what gets reborn? Your bad habits get reborn. <laughs> and so, in any case, uh, we were looking at that. How do we hold both of those together, both awakening and the fact that sometimes we get stuck, we have issues, all sorts of things, all sorts of things uh, uh, happen. And I did that in the context of talking about my retreat from... Uh, from last week, last uh, month, where I was on retreat for actually for four weeks uh, at Spirit Rock, uh, mostly um, sitting in meditation in my in my room for the better part of four weeks, and I talked about some of the themes which came out of the retreat, and the theme that I looked at last time was one of them, and and I, I'll basically extend it. Uh, uh, further and, and in, a, in a way deeper today. And then and I also uh, gave at the end of the last session uh, seven guidelines for practicing with this theme, which I had posted on the Dharmacy website so people could look at it. How many actually were able to see that and maybe work with it some and work with those guidelines? Yeah. And, and so I'll come back to that. And it'll be up there um, indefinitely, so we can continue to work with it. And I'll just mention a little bit of what I covered last time, and then go, go as I mentioned, go a little further and deeper. You know, I, last time I talked about some of the themes on my retreat. One theme, which is still with me 10 days after the retreat ended, are, was my uh, sense I think shared by three quarters of the people who did the retreat that I think I'm a little bit too busy in my life. I would like to have more space and room for what is most important. And you don't have to go on retreat to have that sense. Anyone have that sense at times? Right? Right. So that's, that's ongoing. Maybe we can have a whole session or two just on that theme. Right? How do I... How do I... Uh, organize my life. And it's not always easy so that I'm focusing on what's most important. Of course, there are all sorts of constraints of livelihood and family and all sorts of other demands. Uh, but that, that was an ongoing question. Um, for me, one of the sort of loves of my life that was evident again is just my love of retreat and of our of our practice, you know, of, of being really immersed in that practice. Um, I also loved, uh, I did about two hours a day at the retreat, I did uh, uh, body practices that open up the, uh, what we might call the subtle energy of the body, you know, and that opened to a sense of, uh, you know, the inner experience of the body and the outer reality being like uh, an unbroken 
radiant, splendorous uh, reality. Very wonderful. And so uh, that was part of the retreat, as well as focusing on just continuity of, of full awareness. And the theme I looked at last time was also one of them, which is how to bring together, again, the sense of awakening with the sense that uh, sometimes I get stuck or caught in things, you know, sometimes in a small way, sometimes in a bigger way, right? And again, this is something that we, that we all share. You know, do we find ourselves sometimes even having the narrative, ah, this practice isn't working. I'm just getting stuck. How am I developing? Anyone have that thought at times or something like it? Right? It's, it's part of the process, right? So it's, it's normal. And, you know, I'll, t I'll come back to that because it's, um, there are ways that we want to watch out for that narrative because that can, sometimes if it's strong enough, uh, be paralyzing or stop us from practicing, right? So we want to watch out for that. It can be very helpful to sometimes to have a friend or a mentor or a teacher to, or it could be a community to help one through the stretches where that narrative gets strong. You know, I can think of one person I work with uh, who was actually working, you know, has been working for some time with uh, residues of childhood trauma, right? And sometimes that material is very strong and it can lead and her, in this case, it can lead her sometimes to reflect, uh, this is always going to be with me, I'll be, I'll be stuck with this. And so in our uh, connection, it's very, she says, it's extremely helpful. And she asked me often just to, just to give a larger narrative. This is a learning process, right? You are in an intense learning process and you can sometimes feel like that's all there is. But there's actually a bigger picture. You know, and I, I can see that. You can't see it always so easily, right? There is a larger picture, you know, of, of working through stuff. So um, that's, that's very important. So well, I spoke last time how it's helpful just to come back to the Buddha's core teaching, which is that when we practice, we're entering into what we might call a path of awakening. It's awakening, we can use different language, it's awakening to our true nature, it's awakening to our depths. Awakening to our depths, we might say, of wisdom and love and skillful action in the world. It's awakening to what connects our awakening process with manifesting our own personal gifts in the world. That's what, you know, that's what this is about. That's what we're entering into. And we have uh, guidance on this path. We have practices that can be helpful for developing core capacities like mindfulness, like kindness, like compassion, like equanimity, like patience. We're having perspective that we get especially through teachings about what typically can happen on this path, what to look out for, how to work with some core areas like um, speech and communication and learning to develop mindfulness uh, better, learning to develop more stability of mind or, or concentration and so forth. And many of us may have a model of there being a, a gradual awakening. You know, this is probably what the Buddha taught most commonly, that there's a gradual awakening that we can, uh, that we're generally moving towards it you know, and, and learning. 
how many people have something like that model of a gradual awakening? You know, that's one way to deal with this whole area. We're not, you know, we're not fully there yet, but we can see how we're learning. And again, I'll, I'll remind us the Dalai Lama said, when you look at your practice over time, look at it in five-year intervals. <laughs> Watch out for doing it in a one-month interval, because <laughs> that can be not so helpful. The Dalai Lama said, look at five years. Okay, then track how you're doing. And so, yeah, just be careful with saying, okay, I'm going through a rough stretch now. Again, watch out for, watch out for those uh, narratives. And, you know, and, you know, when we can have that sense that uh, as we enter into this path where we have a gradual awakening and, you know, many people have said the same could be said actually of, uh, you know, our social evolution, you know, you probably remember from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, a, a phrase he repeated often. He said, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And um, he very much believed that we can look at, you know, social life and, you know, wonder about that, right? Probably many of us do or wonder about whether things are developing, you know, and, and we can contest that. And I think the, the core is just staying committed to a path. And we can also ask the question, I asked it last time, why if our basic nature is awakening and our basic nature is love and wisdom, why do we get stuck? Why are we confused? Why don't we just live in paradise? Right? And different religious traditions have given some answers to this. Um, you know, we have the, I, I mentioned some of them last time. I mentioned, you know, we have, of course, the story of Adam and Eve, where God basically, according to the story, set up um, something like a paradise. And... Uh, for different reasons, uh, uh, Adam and Eve didn't exactly follow the rules and they got kicked out. And later, uh, God thought, you know, there were other things that happened with other people. There were murders and stuff. And God said, I don't think this is working. <laughs> and he, uh, he said, I'm going to have a flood, which, you know, basically lets me start over again. You know, we'll start over again with whoever fits in that Ark of Noah. And so that's, you know, that's the um, God, God said, you know, let's do, uh, let's do human existence 2.0. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one set of stories about, about, about all of this. And there are stories in other traditions, you know, where, people have really questioned, you know, in Jewish tradition, it can be a question, as I mentioned, that was very much there for many people. How can we believe in a God after the Holocaust, right? And you can have, you can have uh, questions like that and reflections. And in, in Buddhist tradition, sometimes, you know, in the teachings of the Buddha, you know, it's said that, uh, we are caught in what's called samsara, S-A-M-S-A-R-A. -A -A. And the Buddha saw this as actually an endless cycle of being caught in greed, hatred, or delusion. You know, now if you look, uh, you'll find that uh, samsara is also, there are actually several companies that have named themselves samsara. Uh, one of them is a perfume company called samsara. Um, another one, uh, there's a luggage company called Samsara. And there's also a um, kind of an internet company called Samsara, which particularly uh, says, we will help you, uh, we will help you uh, if you're a, a trucking organization, we will help you track your trucks. And they call themselves Samsara. <laughs> so, 
Um, interesting. And of course, that company is based in San Francisco, <laughs> the Samsara uh, company, right? And so, so again, in the traditional teaching, Samsara is the cycle of birth and death uh, driven by, uh, we might say, our, our, our bad habits. Uh, this is from the Buddha. Inconceivable practitioners is the beginning of samsara. A first point is not known of beings roaming and wandering the rounds of rebirth, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving and grasping, by reactivity. And in those traditional teachings, the aim is to leave samsara and enter nirvana, which is to really cut through greed, hatred, and delusion. This is again from the Buddha saying how he has been able to leave samsara. Through many a birth, I wandered in samsara. This is the Buddha. Seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Painful it is to be born again and again. You know, and for contemporary practitioners, this might not so much be uh, a belief in rebirth in terms of lies, but it might be the sense that our habits get reborn over and over again. Every time we engage in our habitual tendencies, we, in a sense, uh, let those habits be reborn. So the Buddha is saying, painful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, you are seen. You shall build no house again. All your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. And this is understood by the Buddha as nirvana. So one way of understanding this is, again, that, that we are caught in habitual tendencies. We engage in a gradual path of awakening, and we can come to awaken partially and then fully, as the Buddha did. And on that model, we leave samsara and we are not uh, we are not reborn again in the traditional understanding. I'll come back to that because it can be understood also differently. So that's a traditional understanding of this question of how do we understand the coexistence of awakening and habit. So one way is to simply to say there's a gradual process which leads beyond our habits once we engage in it. So also last time I gave uh, a suggestion of seven ways of practicing. And so let's put that on the screen now. And this is what we worked with last time. I'll be very brief here about this. Let's go so we can see the first four now, uh, Carlita, if we can do that. These are seven practices for holding the intention and framework of awakening while being with habitual tendencies. So this is what I, the suggestion was to, to work with. And I, again, I put this on the Dharma Seed website uh, along with the talk, and you can download it or read it. First, straightforward, keep developing the tools of practice. Mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, ethics, you know, hear the teachings, gain the perspective. Particularly, number two, work with the core teaching about transforming reactivity. Identify particularly when reactivity occurs in your life and practice. Work to transform it. We intend as best as possible to respond in the moment out of non-reactivity, which is often hard when someone does something maybe unethical, when there's social injustice, etc. So this is a whole major area of focus, which we've sometimes uh, given several sessions to. Number three, keep developing the attitude that all is practice, including difficulties and challenges, Tibetan teaching, Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Number four, very crucial, assess whether a given difficult or challenging experience is workable. Use the scale of one to 10 to clarify the degree of difficulty of the experience. 
for a nine or a 10, mindfulness may not be workable. It might not even be so easy to work with it, but then we want to find a way just to shift out of the experience so it's not dominant. You know, talk to a friend, uh, do some practice like loving kindness, take a walk, uh, do a body practice or whatever. Number five, work particularly to see and not feed especially negative and reactive narratives and storylines, including about how one's doing. Number six, develop patience and the perspective of being present, even though there's a sense of incompleteness or I'm not getting the results I want. Find ways to develop and support confidence and faith. And then number seven, see the larger world, the social world in a similar way. You know, and we could see our time almost seems to be a race between awakening on the one hand and the negative qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion intensifying on the other. What, you know, whether we look to the climate crisis or any of the other crises of economic inequality or racism or uh, democracy and, and so forth. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a race between awakening and our problems. Yeah. So, so these are, these are ways of practicing. And, uh, in our discussion, we can talk about how it's been. So I want to take us a little further now with this theme. That's, that's what we've covered. And those ways of practicing can be really be guidelines, you know, indefinitely as long as we're practicing. So here are some further reflections and practice, guide, practice guidelines. A further guideline I could make number eight is um, look for the sense of self that you find when you're reactive or stuck. What sense of self is there? You know, if I'm maybe uh, one one way that this might manifest is when I'm caught in doing. You know, when I'm, uh, when I'm really caught in uh, being a doer. Again, very valuable at times, but we can find ourselves sometimes being reactive, uh, look for a sense of self when there's a doer, or maybe when I'm feeling self-righteous. This can be inquiry, tune in. Okay, I'm feeling really self-righteous, and I actually have some good points on my side. Let me look at the sense of self that's developing around being self-righteous, right? So look at the sense of self, investigate that. That's an ongoing part of the practice. Remember, again, we looked at this last time, reflect on how actually awakening, we don't awaken unless we have stuff. We don't awaken unless we actually can notice our habits, our problems, uh, our difficulties, what's painful and so forth, that we can see our challenges as opportunities for practice and learning. For me, this, when I, in myself and seeing it in others, this is a little more advanced. This is not a beginning capacity to say, oh, I'm having a difficulty an opportunity for practice, right? We didn't, you know, we didn't start with that. Most of us probably, we, you know, I started meditating think, thinking, oh, I'll be calm and peaceful and have wonderful states of mind. Don't talk to me about difficulties. I want peace and calm. Did anyone start with something like that? <laughs> I think it's very common, right? And so we can... At a more, when we have some stability, we could actually reflect and say, oh, a difficulty. Wow, another opportunity for practice. Not so easy, right? Um, someone I worked with told me that part of her training to be a therapist was to uh, remember what they call in that training a moment of fog, F-O-G, which is similar to what I mentioned last time. F-O-G stands for an effing opportunity for growth. <laughs> an effing opportunity for growth. Any non-native English speakers, I think I will not explain effing, but it's spelled F 
apostrophe ing. Okay. Ask your English-speaking friends what it means if you if ever we have any non-native speakers. Okay. And so, how can we take uh, challenges and difficulties as an opportunity, as a moment of fog, F-O-G? Seeing really, you know, really, I think as the Buddha saw it, seeing life as a kind of a training ground. Interesting, right? You know, it's also a time, can be a time of wonder and learning, but it also has this aspect of training ground. <clears throat> Another way of practicing, which I've particularly focused on um, since the retreat, which is very interesting, uh, which really is another way of practicing, is we can relate to our ordinary activities, including our confusion, as in a way sacred. And we can have almost like a devotional approach to challenges when they come up, as well as ordinary activities. I've been doing this, you know, just to realize that it's our ordinary life with its ups and downs, with all the activities, with doing one's taxes, with preparing meals, raising children, dealing with difficulties. It's our ordinary activities which make possible awakening. And there can be almost a devotional approach, which I've been finding in myself. Oh, I'm cooking a meal. Wow, this is part of what makes awakening possible. And I can have gratitude and appreciation simply for being with the meal. And it can really help with there being awareness. I would call this almost like a devotional approach to everyday life, seeing it being connected with awakening. Just the ordinary activities, fixing a meal, answering email, cleaning the kitchen, right? You know, for me, going swimming. These are activities that make possible, that are part of the fabric of awakening. There can be a sense of devotion. There can be gratitude. There can be a sense, this is part of the sacred process. And my, one of my favorite expressions of this, I wanted to read some of it. I read it from time to time. This is from a book um, called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. So maybe this can be partly to connect with Easter a little bit. This is from the uh, Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont. And this is a beautiful book. And I'll read the whole book to you. Okay, ready? It actually will just take a short time. I usually don't read whole books as part of my talks. But um, this, is, uh, this is basically this devotional approach, this sense of gratitude towards every day, which can be really part of a way of connecting the awakening process to everyday life, including the difficulties. This is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. He washes, he washes his toes and says, thank you, toes. He gets milk. He drinks his coffee. A little bit anachronistic, but it's okay. He drinks his coffee and says, thank you, coffee. He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, and up the hill. The birds come flying, flying, flying. Flying, flying, flying. The birds come flying. Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes, until the sun sets. Good night. So that's a sense of the whole day as sacred. We could have that sense, the whole day as part of the journey of awakening, right? 
and appreciating. I, I, this is part of my practice right now. Uh, it's almost, we call it a devotional approach of appreciating just these small everyday things. Ordinary life makes possible awakening. It's a perspective we can have. And I'll give one other perspective that's a little bit different. This is from later Buddhist tradition said that actually samsara and nirvana are not fundamentally different. You know, this was particularly expressed first by a great uh, writer and teacher from the second century or, or so named Nargajana, uh, who was uh, sometimes called the second Buddha. He was a Mahayana philosopher, and his name is connected with the, the Nagas, who are semi-divine beings who often live under the water, who are half serpent and half human. And he was said to have gone down into Nagaland, and the Nagas gave him the teachings about samsara and nirvana not being so different. You know, maybe it's because they were half, half uh, serpent, half divine human. I don't know. And so Nargajana say, said that uh, there's no difference between awakening and our bad habits. They are part of the same process. Nirvana isn't a different realm, but rather it's the clarity that we have when we see things as they are, including our habits, our difficulties, our bad practices. And he saw that this especially happens when we can be with everything without making a story about it, without having a narrative, actually even without conceptualizing what's going on, but just being present with it. This, is, this was his conclusion. Ultimate serenity, or nirvana, is the coming to rest of all ways of taking and conceptualizing things. It is the repose of named things no truth has been taught by a Buddha for anyone, anywhere. He's saying we actually, it's going beyond concepts and being, being with the awakening process. This is one way, one way of looking at it. And in that sense, he says that awakening is not different from the world, not, not different from the habits. You know, and... and um, in the Tibetan tradition, there are, uh, there are some texts which say something very similar. It's basically saying that our core nature is that of awakening, particularly what's called awakened awareness. In Tibetan, that would be Rigpa. That our core nature is awakening and that somehow we forget about awakening and get into our habits. And this is a, this is a text, this is from a text called The Prayer of Kuntazampo, which is an old text, which gives an account. In the beginning, delusion arises in sentient beings. When awareness of the source is forgotten, the mind becomes numb and dull. This is the first ignorance and the cause of every ill. Instantly unconscious, one's thoughts wander aimlessly one is seized by hope and fear. This begets I and other, friend and enemy. Through clinging, this becomes habitual. Descending from that comes samsara. In the increasing afflictions of ignorance, grasping, hatred, jealousy, and pride or arrogance, there is no end to this activity. So the source of the delusion of sentient beings is the numb, dull mind of forgetting. May all beings clarify the dull mind, release all clinging, and recognize awareness. So when we come to that awakened awareness, which is very similar to nirvana, and see everything clearly, we come back in that language to the source. 
Another Tibetan text called the Six Lamps, a passage. In this universal ground of awareness, there is no distinction between samsara and nirvana. Buddhahood and sentient beings, suffering and compassion, again saying no difference between them. Ordinary thought and primordial wisdom, vice and virtue, happiness and misery, false and positive qualities, higher and lower realms, self and other, cause and effect, and so forth. There is no distinction between stain and stainless, between existence and non-existence, birth and death, rejecting or accepting. So that's a deeper teaching, right? It's saying that from a certain perspective, the perspective of the Buddha, we can have both an awakened awareness and see our habitual tendencies coming through. We can see have both at the same time. Another way of saying it is that the mind that gets confused and the mind that awakens are the same mind. Is that true? <laughs> it's the same mind. And so we can kind of take refuge. One can say yes to, yes to everything and have gratitude and patience for the process. And that, that can help, is really one of the guidelines, was that can really help to develop a sense of um, faith and confidence and not to be too fixated on what happens today or tomorrow or this month. You know, um, this is from Thomas Merton, a Christian contemplative. When you, have, when you are doing the sort of work you have taken on, essentially a religious work, a spiritual work, you may have to face the fact that sometimes your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself, right? the truth of your, of your path. This is from the Bhagavad Gita, from, again, from several thousand years ago. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work, the same in success and misfortune, this evenness, this is discipline. I mentioned last time a quote I really like from Philip Moffat. He said, we plant the seeds, the Dharma does the growing. Remember that? We plant the seeds. The Dharma does the growing. So we just keep on with things. And the results or when results happen, we let that be as they may. So with this whole teaching, the suggestion is to really start where you are, not to be overly grandiose. Just work with those guidelines keep on practicing, but the whole point of it is to see our awakening process and even our very moments of awakening as not fundamentally different from our habits and when we get stuck. They're all part of the same process and we can have that quality of appreciating, really it's appreciating the journey and even giving gratitude that there is such a journey. Right? that we are on, on that kind of journey. So I'll finish just with a few quotations, and then we can talk together. The first is from the Buddha. This, this is him talking about nirvana or liberation or awakening, this is the deathless, the Buddha says, namely the liberation of the mind through non-clinging. And that can be both a moment, which we experience ourselves often, and it can be something that has more stability over time, which the Buddha experienced. This is the deathless, namely the liberation of the mind through non-clinging. And then from the Tibetan tradition, from the 14th century, a teacher called Longchenpa, one of my favorite teachers. 
Awakened mind is by nature primordially pure. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing to discard or adopt, nothing that comes and goes, nothing ultimately to achieve by trying. And then lastly, from a contemporary teacher, Robert Thurman, who is also in the Tibetan tradition, he says, our freedom has to be right here while totally committed to other beings and totally connected with them. So our freedom has to be right here with whatever's happening. That's where we find our freedom in the moment with what's ever happening, being committed also to help others and feel connected with them. So I'll stop there and thank you for your kind attention. Let's, let's just have a, a few moments of quiet. see what may have been helpful or resonant. And what felt important to you? Again, it may be related to talk. Sometimes in a talk you may have an insight or an opening that's actually not directly connect with the talk, so give room for that also. And then see if there's anything you'd like to ask about the talk. Uh, it could also be to share something from the last week of practice, you know, maybe particularly related to those seven guidelines, which are really the heart of how we bring the material of the talk into our lives more and more. So is there something you'd like to share or a question you'd like to ask, clarification or, or something else? Thank you. So we have uh, we have Victoria and then Liz and then uh, Seema. Um, am I unmuted? Yeah, you're fine. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Um, this has been a wonderful talk, and I really loved last week too. So I'm glad you're still on the subject. Um, last week you quoted um, somebody, and I tried to track him down. And I'm not sure I came up with Dr. Walpola Rahula Thero, but I, that might be totally wrong. It was something about, um, he, he was talking about when he does something with good intentions and oh, yeah. he fails, he doesn't regard it as a failure. Um, I, I'm not sure, I, I was doing a deep dive into the internet, but <laughs> was it was it Dr. Walpola Rahula Thero? Uh, no, it was someone okay. whom, I, whom I interviewed. It was uh, oh. uh, Dr. A.T. Ariaratni. And um, it's, it's, could, um, I could didn't, you put that in the chat or is that in your book? It's in my book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. But, but if I want to look him up, what, um, what was his last name? Chatney? Uh, Arya Ratney uh, from Sri Lanka. Uh, A-R-I. Uh-huh. I think Y-A-R-A-T-N-E. I believe that's the correct spelling. Arya Ratney. Okay. Dr. Arya Ratni, A.T. Arya Ratni, and he's uh, the founder of uh, Sarvodaya. Yeah, and yeah, he had, you know, and the quote came from an interview I did with him. I got to meet with him a few times, and he was an organizer of the most extensive 
bringing a Buddhist practice to community life, I think that's existed in the world, you know, to, I think, 15,000 chapters in Sri Lanka. Wow. And I, I mentioned last time that they had more effective response to the tsunami from, you know, like 15 years ago than the government did. Yeah, I remember that. No, it was really inspiring. That's why I was trying to track them down. So thank you for that. The other thing I wanted to share was just that um, when I um, I was living in Nepal briefly uh, with my grandmother, and I read the Bhagavad Gita, um, and there was one quote, and I'm not sure where it is, but I've carried it with me for all these decades, like half a century, um, which was similar to the one that, that you were reading, but it was it was um, it was this idea of doing everything, or this is how I kept it in my head was the idea that every action, whatever it is, however simple, is sacramental. Yeah. So this yeah. idea that your whole life is sacramental, and even the tiniest details, the tiniest quotidian actions, and um, I just. That, that moved me so deeply that I've remembered it my whole life, that it always, when I'm in that doing phase, I always try to bring myself back to that, that even brushing my teeth is sacramental. That's right. I think it's a, it's a beautiful perspective. As I mentioned, it's something which has been inspiring for me uh, from the retreat and in the period after that I'm actively bringing in, you know, at the current moment. And it's, I think it's something we find, you know, I found it in that, uh, uh, book on St. Francis, I think we find it in multiple traditions, something like that. Uh, but here I'm, I'm, I was offering that as a, as a practice, uh, not mentioned in, my, you know, in the seven guidelines, but it could be a practice that really helps one to see um, the awakening process and all the parts of one's life, the ups and downs, you know, to use your language, uh, sacramentally, you know, to see everything, you know, just uh, sweeping the floor or, you know, or making the meal or, you know, whatever it is, uh, driving to the post office, that these are all part of the awakening process. That's, that's the perspective I was offering. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's really beautiful. Oh, and, um, oh, no, I don't, nothing else. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Victoria. Um, yeah, Liz, please. Hi there. A really wonderful talk. I hope you're going to post it. And, I will, um, yeah. You know I love it when you talk about the gradual path of awakening because for me that's been what's happening for 25 years. And suddenly, well, it was a gradual path of awakening, but suddenly when I was 81, boy, <laughs> yeah. it just burst out, you know? Yeah. So I know there was both maybe in Tibetan practice, the gradual path and the sudden emergence. Yeah, yeah. That is that definitely, definitely a result of the gradual path. Yeah. For me, for me. And for me, um, samsara is not being able to let go of my interpretation of what happened. Yeah. Samsara is letting go of the story. Yeah. And, or or um, nirvana is letting go of the story. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, yes, Nirvana yeah. is letting go of the story, but Samsara is not letting go of the story. And um, uh, again, it's just, there is fruition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there, there are uh, two points I want to bring out further from what you said, Liz. Um, one of them is, and the Buddha talked about this, there's both a gradual path and there are, um, you know, sudden deepenings or sudden awakenings. Both are there. He talked about that. He, he had the metaphor of sort of going, gra you know, that the, uh, the, uh, the land uh, underneath the ocean, you know, has a gradual deepening. And then suddenly it will go right down, right, and go deeply. So he said that, you know, sometimes there's... Uh, a gradual awakening, and sometimes there can be sudden insight, you know, and, um, you know, other traditions have also talked about both of those being, being the case. And then I think I like the, uh, uh, the way that you define samsara as sort of not letting go of the storyline or the 
framework, very similar to what I mentioned from Nargajana. He said, the essence of samsara is being caught in habitual concepts. Well, I often had this amazing insight about within the last three or four months that I was clinging to my suffering. Yeah. And it sounds so nothing, but it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary insight and really changed my life radically. Really, really crucial. Yeah, again, like we could probably ask a show of hands, but it's something really like looking when there's some something uh, sort of emotionally painful, look for the sense of self that might be uh, really invested in, oh, poor me or something. We can see narratives or maybe it's in getting really hooked in blaming someone else, right? Uh, but really looking into the narratives, looking for the sense of self. Again, all of which can coexist with the other person having significant responsibility. It's not, you know, both, both can be the case. So yeah, seeing those narrative, really crucial. Thanks, Liz. And Seema, please. Yes. Um, it was wonderful to be here today. It seems to apply to what's been going on for me a lot. I want to thank Julie for being so courageous in sharing what she was going through because for the last several months I've been in a very deep depression. I haven't been able to make it to Sangha. Um, I function at work and everything, but it's been really awful. And that's been changing. Well. And because I did actually continue to practice and I, all of that. So what I went to, what I got to is the thing you said about, I'll always be this, be this way. I'm stuck with this narrative is that's, I've been letting go of that. I've been yeah. able to let go of yeah. that through practice. And I've also been relying, if not on talking to people in Sangha, to at least acknowledging that I'm part of a Sangha, yeah. that I do this by myself. Yeah. Um, that things that are theoretical, they have to show up, they have to appear to me somehow in a concrete form. And Sangha does that for me. It's, oh, I'm sharing this with other people. Um, the whole gra the gradual awakening it's not the first time I've heard that phrase. I don't remember who it was that first used it. Maybe Stephen Levine, but it's looking over time, looking at five years and then tracking how you're doing is came from a genius. I mean, I think the Dalai Lama is a kind of genius. And <laughs> if I look back five years and then five years before that and five years before that, and I've been in practice for over three decades and sometimes it feels like nothing is changing. Yeah. And if I look at it, from a perspective of just look at it, don't create a story about it. It's really amazing that everything I've done and every moment I've lived through, even the most awful of them, things have been changing. I have been changing. And um, I mean, everything else you said, I just, I'm going to go to Dharma Seed and listen to this again, but being caught in habitual tendencies, um, I live with residues of childhood trauma all the time. Yeah. And, and I developed a lot of habitual tendencies, and they're hard to let go of. Yeah. They're hard to let go of even when they're not useful. And yet what I notice, and it's not always obvious to other people, but it's obvious to me, is that slowly but surely I'm understanding them. I'm aware of them when they happen, and I make a little movement toward doing something, reacting differently or responding differently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have some reassurance from your Dharma talk, actually, that I'm doing the right stuff. Yeah. That I'm continuing to practice, continuing to be a part of Sangha, and that um, there's no... I'm not going to achieve the gold medal Olympic practice in, in Buddhism, but slowly but surely I'm making it to a... I'm making it one day at a time. Get, I'm actually you get the bronze medal. I'll get the bronze. <laughs> yeah. Or a chip or something. It just yeah, the one day at a time, the one moment at a time to be present is like the most valuable thing I've ever yeah. been able to grasp from this. Um it really changes everything. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Seaman. Also thank you very much for, for your sharing, being willing to be vulnerable and so forth. Um it was really, really crucial. And 
there are, there are several um, dimensions of what you shared that I, I wanted to highlight. Um, one of them is just the, the importance of, in our practice, of identifying the narratives. Because it's the narratives that can sometimes paralyze us or really dominate us, really create a mood for hours or days. So really track for the narratives, you know, especially when there's something challenging happening, like this will always be this way or whatever. And community also you named is really crucial. And I, it, I was thinking of the work that we do with the transforming the judgmental mind that what I have found really crucial over the years, when people are in groups, particularly small groups, and they hear that the dynamics of, let's say, harsh self-judgment are very similar, and they hear one person after another saying something very similar, it really takes the edge off one's personal narrative, where we often think, I am uniquely... Yeah. problematic or uniquely have these difficulties and even knowing that other people have similar difficulties and that they're very similar dynamics I find um, extraordinarily helpful even when we're going to, yeah even going into difficult territory let alone you know sharing beautiful things and wonderful things so that's the second piece and third piece is just to yeah, in terms of when residues of trauma appear, just somehow to really know very well what they look like, whether it's at the level of a narrative, a thought, or something in the body, and just being able to see them. And if mindfulness is possible, to bring that in, or just to basically, especially when it's a narrative that comes along with it, just to say, okay, I recognize you. I'm not going to feed you. That's so crucial. You know, I will not feed you further. I will, I will not continue the thought, right? That, that takes some discipline. Yeah. Great. Thank Thanks so much, Seema. There's a lot, a lot there, a lot from, a lot there from everyone. Great. So let's um, let's move towards our closing now. Thank you for those who who shared and shared very uh, vulnerably in many ways. We'll close just with uh, two reflections. The first is to reflect on how for yourself to take what's important for you and keep it going. So what are your intentions Maybe if you were energized or inspired by what we explored today to ask, how can I keep this going? Maybe taking aspects of daily life as a sacrament or working with those guidelines, which are, which are there on the web uh, and available. So just what, what are your intentions going forward? Again, might be something not related directly to the talk that came up, an insight, and that may be the basis for your intention. So what are your intentions going forward, maybe especially for the next week or so? And then we'll close with the dedication of merit, uh, also a kind of intention practice. We remember, I like that quote from Robert Thurman at the end, we remember that we practice increasingly with a sense of connections with others, with all beings. So may our time together, may the benefits of our time together be offered to all beings knowing that we are deeply connected to all beings.
thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Carlita. Yay, Carlita, for your for your help with everything. Thank you, Donald. Thank and you feel free if you want to unmute and say goodbye. And I, I will be back here in, in May sometime. That's the plan, at least. Thank bye -bye. you, Sangha. Thank you, Carlita. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Donald and Sangha. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Very important. Thank you, everyone. See you in Sacramento. Yeah, see you, Sacramento. Blessings, Julie. <laughs> yes, blessings, Julie, Julie, Julie. Thank you much, Mother. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Donald. Yeah. Have a good week. Thank we'll you. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.